If you're just joining us for the first time or if it's been a little while and you pop back in here at Cedar Street, let me catch you up real quickly. We are in the midst of a sermon series entitled, Jesus Is. Jesus Is. It's a study of the book of Mark. And so what we've been doing, so we can take our time going verse by verse and chapter by chapter, is we've been picking up where we left off each fall. And so a couple of weeks ago, we started in chapter 5 where we left off in 2018. And now we're getting towards the end of chapter number Six, And we're going to be in Mark 6, 45 through 56 today in a sermon entitled, Beyond All Borders. Beyond All Borders. You know, last week we talked about Jesus as the Good Shepherd as He fed the 5,000. I did get a little emotional during that sermon, and I thought afterwards, leave it to a Southern Baptist preacher to cry over a sermon about food. Uh, <laughs> but it was those words, like sheep without a shepherd that stirred my heart last week for sure. And, and today, we see Jesus sending His disciples back on the boat, and then we see Him do a couple of things that only Jesus can do. He's a Savior who goes beyond all borders. And as I was thinking about the message here and thinking about times in my life where I've seen people go beyond the borders that I didn't realize they could go beyond, I, I just remember this one story. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was working at the registrar's office at the seminary in uh, North Carolina, and as the assistant registrar over the graduate and advanced degrees, if somebody wanted to get a master's or a doctorate, I had to basically walk them through and help them with the application process and transfer credits and all those types of things. Well, one day, our associate vice president of operations, who, who was basically my boss's boss, came into my office and said, I want to get another master's degree. Can you help me get into the program? And I said, yeah, I think I can. Give me your assistant's number and I'll take care of everything. So I call his assistant. And I said, I hear Ryan wants to, to get a master's of theology, and, and here's, the, here's the process. He's got to fill this application out. He needs three letters of recommendation. He needs this, and he needs this. And right, right in the middle of that, his assistant stopped me and said, Bo, stop. This is Ryan Hutchinson. He's the associate vice president. He wrote the rules. He can break them. If he wants to be a student in the master's of theology program starting right now, he's a student. And I realized in every sphere of life, when you make the rules, you can go beyond the borders of the rules. We're going to see in this passage here this morning that Jesus Christ does something that no human being can do. And He is fully human, but He's also fully divine as the Son of God. And what we're going to see in this passage is that Jesus transcends all human borders to reveal, in fact, He is the Son of God. And that really is our big idea in one sentence, but I'll repeat it. Jesus is the Son of God who goes beyond all borders to reveal His divine authority. I'll say it again. Jesus is the Son of God who goes beyond all borders to reveal His divine authority. So if you want to see how our Lord Jesus can transcend all human borders... Would you join me by turning to the book of Mark, second book of the New Testament, after Matthew before Luke? If you don't have a Bible, grab the Pew Bible in front of you. We'll be on page 1001 in your Pew Bible. And if you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and fully sufficient word. Again, we're in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to read starting in verse 45 down to the end of the chapter. In verse 56, hear God's word to us through his servant Mark. Immediately, 
he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of our Lord. May he bless it and add his blessing to its reading. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. Father, we thank you and praise you for this day, and we confess that we need you at this hour. Father, as we consider your Son, fully God, fully man, transcending all human borders to reveal his divine authority, I acknowledge to you that none of us can know Jesus until your Spirit moves and removes the blinders that we can see him for who he truly is. And that's my prayer this morning, that you would remove the blinders, Lord, that we would see Jesus as the Son of God. And that this time in this room would be an act of worship. And for those that do know Him as the Son of God, they'd get a fresh look at our Savior and surrender to Him in a new and deeper way. Be with us now. May we worship You in spirit and truth as we listen to the preaching of Your words. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, Amen. So as we get ready to walk into the end of Mark chapter 6, I want to say very quickly something that was true of what we looked at last week is also true of what we're going to look at today. When Jesus does a physical miracle, it points to a spiritual reality. And we're going to see how he transcends physical borders and how it points to the fact that he also transcends spiritual borders as the Son of God. Now, remember last week, he took five loaves and he took two fish and he looked up to the heavens And he cried out, and God took the five loaves and the two fish and fed 5,000 with plenty left over. Now he gets on the boat, or he sends the disciples ahead of him on the boat, and he goes up to the mountain to pray. And you would think that the disciples would fully understand at this point who Jesus is, and you would think if there's anyone that could get by without having to pray, it would be Jesus. But as we'll see as this story unfolds, the disciples do not know who Jesus is, and Jesus is still as dependent on the Father as He ever was. So, I want to talk about how in this particular passage, in verses 45 through 56, that Jesus transcends three specific borders as our Lord and Savior 
as the Son of God, fully God and fully man. And here's the first one. Number one, Jesus prays beyond all borders. Listen to verses 45 through 46 again. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now, let me just talk about physical borders for a minute. We could easily say that Jesus left the physical boundaries of the town and climbed up on top of the mountain. He certainly did that. But I also want to say that the physical reality of the mountain also points to a spiritual reality that God's getting to do something good. In fact, you need to be aware of these cues when you're reading the Scriptures, okay? In the New Testament, it's whenever a, a, a religious leader, uh, someone, one of the scribes or Pharisees or Jesus himself, when they're getting ready to teach, they, they sit down. All right, so there's, there's motions. And when they get ready to watch something, they stand up. Well, when Jesus gets ready to do something, or even in the Old Testament, when God was getting ready to teach something, it always happens on a mountain. Always. I'll give you a few examples. Abraham and Isaac. Where did God tell Abraham to go to sacrifice his son Isaac? Take him up the mountain. And that was Mount Moriah. And what happened there? As Abraham's getting ready to kill his son, an angel says, no, no, no. You do not give up your son. God's going to give up his. And they renamed Mount Moriah, God will provide. Then you have the Ten Commandments. God called Charlton Heston to go up the mountain. <laughs> right? And what did he come down with? The law, the Ten Commandments. All right, something very big. God was calling a nation unto himself. And he did it on a mountaintop. And then he sent Moses down. And he had to do it more than once because of how sinful the people were. Then you have the Sermon on the Mount. Now, don't miss this. In the Old Testament, God gave the law on the mountain to Moses to take to the people. Now, Jesus is on the mountain reinterpreting the law. He's saying, I gave Moses the law for you to live according to it, and you couldn't. Therefore, I, as the Son of God, am here to fulfill it. Law given on the mountain, law fulfilled on a mountain. Originally given to Israel reinterpreted for the church. All of this is happening on the mountain. And then we also see the transfiguration. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah revealed in glory, revealing his identity as the Son of God. He does it on a mountain. And then, of course, the Last Supper. In Luke 21, right after they were done, it says they went out singing to the Mount of Olives. He's getting ready to be the sacrifice. And then finally, the crucifixion. In the crucifixion, he goes to what we call Mount Calvary or Golgotha. Not only was he telling them about the sacrifice, eventually he became the sacrifice. As Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain and Isaac was not sacrificed, but a substitute was, Jesus eventually, as the substitute himself, is sacrificed on a mountain. So I hope after this message today, anytime you're in the scriptures and you read something about someone going to the mountain you're going to put your seatbelt on because something's fixing to happen. It's about to go down. When he goes up, it's about to go down. Okay? Easy to remember. Well, he's going up on the mountain to pray. And why is Jesus going to pray? You know, this is something that should sober us as followers of Christ. If there is one person in human history who could have gone without prayer to accomplish great things, it would be Jesus. 
And yet, Jesus himself would not dare do anything for the Father before he prayed. Now, I just want to illustrate this in one of the Gospels, in the book of John. All right, John, inspired of the Holy Spirit as he's writing the Gospel, is showing over and over and over that Jesus will not do anything unless it's the Father that guides his steps. I'll give you just a few examples. John 5, 19, it says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Also, later on in John 8, 28 through 29, it says, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And then in John 12, 49, it says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Here's what I believe about Jesus. Historians believe that when he died on the cross, he died his physical human death. He was 33 years old. How was it that one man in just 33 years of life could have accomplished all that he did? And the answer, he was fully surrendered to the Father, so he knew what his mission was. And he did not waste a word. He did not waste a footstep. All right, He didn't do everything, and he wasn't everything to everybody. He did not heal every single human being. All right, and he did not preach the gospel to every single human being. If he was fully human, that's just impossible to do in one lifetime. And so he could only be at one place at one time. He could only do one thing at one time. And so he continued to pray so that he would be obedient to the will of the Father and have the Father's power and presence to accomplish that will. And guess what? The same is true for you. You can't be everything for everybody. You can't fulfill every dream. You can't click everything off the to-do to to list. I've tried. All right? You can't. You can't. There's, there's only 24 hours in a day. You only have so much physical energy. And make no mistake about it, you have a purpose on this earth. You have a very distinct purpose on this earth. And when you stand before God at your day of judgment, you will either have fulfilled that purpose or not. You will either hear the words, well done, thy good and faithful servant, or you won't. How do we know his will? And how do we have the power to fulfill his will? And you know the answer? It's prayer. And prayer's not easy. Even people that call themselves prayer warriors, I think would admit that it's, it's, it's work. That's why Paul says in the New Testament, labor with me in prayer. Why is it hard? Well, first of all, we've made it harder than it should be in 2019, all right, because we have the attention span of a two-year-old now because of social media, all right? But it's also hard because when you wake up and you put your feet on the cold hardwood floor, Satan's already going to do everything he can to distract you from having communion with the Father. Jesus would have none of that. Jesus said, I just saw God do something miraculous, I need to climb up on the mountaintop and praise him and find out his will for the next leg of the journey. And by the way, another side note, when God does something great in your life, the moment after that's when you need to go to him in prayer the most. Because our life is filled with spiritual highs and lows, and right after that spiritual high is when we're the most vulnerable. 
As uh, most of you know, this weekend was very special for me. I, I graduated from seminary, and Friday was a spiritual high. And Saturday morning, I laid in bed, and I remember for a few moments just feeling a spiritual low. Six years to work as hard as I can to stand on the edge of that stage and listen to a professor butcher my last name. Um, took two classes under the guy. He called me Fulgati. It's not even close. I was, I was talking to, to uh, my dear brother John over there. If, if you didn't know, we have a doctor in the house now, Dr. John Jordan, who graduated on Saturday. Praise God. Got many blessings in this house. But I better be careful, and so should you. When you have those spiritual highs, maybe it's just something you've been working really hard for, or God has done a major work in your life, and, and you're celebrating a new job, or you're celebrating a milestone, something that God has done. Guess what? There's going to be a low that comes right after that, because that's human, that's human life. And those are the moments we need to cling to God the most, because that's when Satan says, man, their guard is down. I got them right where I want them. Not Jesus. He goes right up to the mountaintop. He had just prayed to the Father. He had just looked to heaven and said, God, we need to feed some people. All we got is a Hebrew Lunchable. We got 5,000 people to feed. And the Father did it. He could have just rested in his laurels and just enjoyed the miracle. But he said, no, I'm going to send the disciples on and I'm going to get to praying because I got something big is about to happen. Same is true for us. We need to be in prayer. I want you to think about this before I move on to number two. When the disciples spent three years traveling with Jesus, what's the one thing they asked him about the most? I mean, I want you to think about that. If Jesus walked with you, what would you want to know? What would you want to ask him? I remember when I was a youth pastor here, I asked our youth that if you could ask Jesus one question, what would it be? And everybody said, Why are there gnats in South Georgia? I thought, You're going to waste that. You're going to waste that time with Jesus asking that silly old question. I don't think there's any gnats in the New Jerusalem. I'm not worried about that. You know what the disciples asked him? How do you pray like that? How do you pray like that? Of all the things that he did, turning water into wine, feeding 5,000, all those things, the disciples were not so fixated on the miracles. They were fixated on the way Jesus prayed. In fact, Luke takes a different approach to the Lord's Prayer. In Luke 11.1, he shows us more distinctly what was said before he started teaching on the Lord's Prayer. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. They watched Jesus and said, how do you do that? You have something I don't have. It's like when you're talking to the Father, he's right there. And you ask him for the power and you receive it. Perhaps many of you have human heroes, spiritual giants of the faith, and you've seen them pray and you've seen them move mountains. Well, I guarantee you, if they had that type of prayer life, it didn't happen overnight. It happened by learning how to pray and praying on the mountaintops and praying in the valleys, hour after hour, day after day. If Jesus needed to be that surrendered to the, to the Father, to pray every day, to have his presence and his power, and to know his will, then so do we. So I want to ask you before we go on to point number two, are you willing to let Jesus stretch you beyond your borders in prayer? Perhaps you're comfortable with prayer, I remember years ago when I first got saved, and you might not believe this now since I'm a vocational minister, but my first year or two at the Guido Bible College, I would silently pray, God, please don't let anybody call on me to pray out loud. Perhaps some of you have had those same thoughts, right? 
I empathize with that. That's why people always say, well, how come you always just call on your deacons to pray? I say, well, not always, but most of the time I do because they're at a stage in their walk with the Lord where they're more comfortable, some more comfortable than others. But I understand that. I, I have felt that way. Lord, please don't let anybody call on me in prayer. All right, I've had that. But I've seen the Lord stretch me over the years beyond my level of comfort, not just publicly, but mostly privately. And the way that he's done it to me the most is this. Perhaps you, you've probably gotten this if you've been here any stretch of time. I believe in confession. And I believe you ought to be so comfortable to ask God to reveal to you anything that you've done that has not honored him, that you would confess it to him and have the guts to go to the person maybe that you violated and confess it to them. Because that, I believe, is the number one barrier that's keeping people from having intimacy with God, to know his presence and joy in your life, and to know his power. You say, well, I pray and God doesn't answer prayer. I say, well, guess what? He doesn't always answer at the time and the way that we do, but maybe God's withholding the blessing because there's a sin that you just refuse to confess. And God's full of grace and he wants to pour it out, but he says, you better get honest with me. Better quit playing games. Stop playing church. Don't sit in the pew acting like everything's all right when you know you're going to leave here and do something that does not honor him. You will not know his power and you will not know his presence and he desires for you to know that. I said this this morning in our, our prayer time and I mentioned this behind the pulpit I think a few times too that if a pastor is at a church long enough that church will begin to take on the personality of the pastor. That scares me. You know, my prayer is more than anything else. I pray that we'd be a church of grace and truth. And I pray that we'd be a confessing church. I pray that the spirit of confession would fall on this church and that people would weep over their sin and know the freedom of being renewed because they got honest, because they took the sin that's in darkness that Satan is holding on to and they released it to the Father and they're free for the first time. And I've seen it happen in several families in this church, and I'm praying for most of you. Now, hear me clearly. I'm saying this because I love you. I pray that God will not leave you alone until you get right with him. So for some of you, at the sound of my voice, I pray for more sleepless nights until you know the blessing of being forgiven. That's the kind of prayer that I believe God wants to stretch you beyond the borders of. Because confession leads to more blessing than I can put into word. Now, Jesus did not need to confess. Jesus was praying to be more fully surrendered. And if you've kept short accounts with God, great. But go deeper. He's got more for you. And prayer's the answer. So number one, Jesus prays beyond all borders. Now number two, Jesus walks Beyond all borders. Verses 47 through 52. I'm going to hit some high notes here. This is the passage we all know well of Jesus walking on water. But let me start with verses 47 through the first part of verse 48. It says, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And when he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now let me stop for a second. Jesus told them to get in the boat, and Jesus sent them off, and they're in the middle of a storm. I've said this every time we've had a passage that we've gone over together where there's a storm. God knew there was a storm, and he purposely sent them into the storm. And that is something I wish that teachers on television would be honest about in the scriptures. 
because they twist the truth to say, if you have enough faith, you'll never face a storm again. And Jesus says, if you follow me, I'm going to send you right into some storms because only in the storms are you going to know who I am. So let me stop and look at all of us for a minute. Are you in a storm right now? Are you in a physical storm and you just have no idea what the report is going to be? Are you in a financial storm? You have no idea how you're going to pay for Christmas. Are you in a spiritual storm? A marital storm? You're questioning things, struggling. Why can't we get this together? God's not surprised. And it's not that God doesn't love you, it's that he does love you. And if you did not go into the storm, you wouldn't know that something needs to be fixed and you wouldn't know that you need him. I'm telling you, I see this more now than ever before. When someone is doing something very sinful and they get caught, that getting caught, that's from God. That's not from Satan. Satan wants to keep it in the dark. God wants to bring it to the light. One of the, some of the best things that may ever happen to some of you is right now you're in sin and you're going to get caught. And when you get caught, it's a blessing from God. And when you're in that storm, know that God purposely led you in there because he wants to do a work in your life. He wants to do a work in your life. Now, let's continue in the passage here. This is really important. All right, so in verse 48, it says, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. That's about three o'clock in the morning. All right, didn't have Starbucks back then, but Jesus was wide awake and so were they. And he was walking on the sea. All right. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. And I want to stop there for just a minute. He comes to them and it says this passage. Oh, the first time I read it, I was like, what? Why would it say this? There's no mistakes in Scripture, by the way. You read something that seems out of place, it's there for a reason. And it says, he meant to pass by them. Now, don't miss this. Why would Jesus want to walk on the sea and just walk past them? Well, do you remember a passage in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus when Moses wanted to see the glory of God? What did he do? God hid him in the cleft of the rock. And he passed by him. So that by passing by him, even if it was just the back of God, he would see his glory and praise him, knowing that he was in the presence of God. Jesus was doing the same thing. Jesus was walking on the sea and hoping to pass by the disciples so that when they saw him, it would be like Moses seeing the back of God and they'd respond by praising him. But guess what happened? They're blind. They still don't get it. They don't know that Jesus is the Son of God. And instead of responding in praise, they respond in terror and Jesus has to comfort them. Now, follow me even further. Okay? In verses 49 through the first part of verse 50, they don't recognize him, meaning that even though he just turned five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000, they don't get the fact that he's God. And he responds in a very interesting way in the second part of verse 50 by telling them three things. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, what does he mean by take heart? Well, he's giving them his word. He's saying, have courage and confidence that if I'm here, this storm is not going to overtake you. 
And he says that to you as well. Take heart. The second thing he says is, it is I. Now, this is huge. I don't claim to be a Greek scholar, but I will say this from those who I do acknowledge as Greek scholars. That phrase, it is I, in the original language could better be translated in two words. I am. Do you remember in the Old Testament when Moses was speaking to God through the burning bush and God told him to go and free the Israelites from Egypt? And he said, well, who should I say sent me? And he said, I am has sent you. The eternal present tense God, not who I will be, not who I was, I am. So I am equals God. And Jesus is saying, take heart, I am is here. He was identifying himself as God. They didn't get it when he passed by the boat, so he plainly tells them with his mouth, I am God. And then finally he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. They had fear in terror of the storm that they were going to die. He says, don't be afraid of the storm. Have fear in me in reverence and all that God just got into your boat. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He walks beyond all borders, Jesus does, not only just on water, but he transcends human borders to say that I am fully man and fully God, and I am here for you. Do you believe me? The disciples didn't believe him, and the reason why is this. You cannot believe that Jesus is God until the Holy Spirit moves in your life and removes the blinders. And they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so they saw Jesus work all of these miracles, but it says in the text that their heart was hardened. They didn't understand the feeding of the 5,000. They still did not get this, and neither will we. Neither will we until the Spirit of God moves in our life. And in that moment, we've got to give our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll say this last part in verse 51 and verse 52. First in verse 51, he does get into the boat. And guess what happens when Jesus gets into the boat? The wind and the waves obey him again. Don't you love that no matter what storm you're in right now, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior that you worship, even the wind and the waves obey him. Even the wind and the waves bow at his feet the moment he puts his foot in the boat. And then in verse 52 again, it says the disciples were astonished and they still lacked understanding. It says they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They saw all these miracles, but the Spirit of God had to move in their life. Let me say this before we move on to our final point. All right, I want to show some empathy here because I'm going to confess when I was first a believer and even this season right before I gave my life to Jesus, I used if you've said you've never done this, then you're lying to your pastor. I, I cried out for God to show me a sign. In fact, people that look for signs, it's, it's, a, it's really a sign of spiritual immaturity. I mean, I would look for God to spell out his will for my life in my alphabet soup. Or if I, I would say, okay, if this happens and then this happens and then this happens, Lord, I'll believe, I'll believe, I'll believe. I remember a year of my life in my early 20s doing that. And guess what happens? Inevitably, every time you do that, you ask for another one. The miracles are never enough because it's not the miracles that remove the blindness. It's the Holy Spirit that indwells a person 
and their eyes are open for the very first time. I remember when I read the Bible for the first time knowing that I knew, that I knew, that I knew that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. It was like these words made my heart pound so fast they were gonna, my heart was going to fly out of my chest. That's a work of God. And some of you have experienced that work and God's responded and He's calling you to give your life to Jesus but you're still white-knuckled on the pews because you know that once you give your life to the Lord Jesus, He's the boss. And there's some darkness that you don't want to come out of yet. And right now, the storm has led you into darkness and Jesus wants to get in your boat. Are you willing to let him in? Are you willing to make him the Lord of your life? And if he is the Lord of your life, is he in your boat? Is he the captain of your boat? Or are you still asking him to be your first mate? There's only one job on any boat for Jesus, and that's captain. He's the one who steers it. Let me say this, if you are in the storm and that's what it takes for you to give your life to Jesus, then one day you'll praise God for that storm. I gave my life to Jesus in 2006. It was the worst year of my life. I praise God for that year because everything went the way I wanted it to. I never would have chosen Christ as my Lord and Savior. Never. God had to lead me to the end of myself so that I could get to the beginning of him. And there are some of you saying, God, why are you letting this happen? And God is saying, if I did not let this happen to you, you would ignore me. And you would die and go to a Christless eternity. The greatest gift that God has maybe ever given you is the pain that you feel right now. Because without that pain, you would not be turning to him. So take advantage of your storm and let Jesus in the boat. Let him in that boat. It's the reason you have the storm to begin with. It's the reason you have the storm. So Jesus prays beyond all borders. He walks beyond all borders. Third and finally, Jesus heals beyond all borders. Verses 55 through 56 basically show that once the storm is over, they cross over into a land, the land of uh, Gennesaret, and they come upon the shore and they find out very quickly the people already know who Jesus is. Verses 53 through the first part of 55 said, they immediately recognized him and they ran about the whole region and began bringing the sick people on their beds to wherever he was. Now first, he heals people beyond all the physical borders of the town. It says that if they were in villages or in cities or in the countryside, they all came and he healed Now listen closely as we draw to a close. How did he heal them? This is interesting. How did he heal them? It says, They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Now, in the Old Testament, again, there were very specific laws. And those Mosaic laws included the fact that if somebody was sick, you could not touch them or you'd be sick. Therefore, according to the Mosaic law, Jesus should not have allowed them to touch him because they would make him sick. They would make him unclean. But Jesus goes beyond those borders too. And he doesn't cancel the law. He fulfills it because the law points to him. And so here's the interesting thing about Jesus. They touch him and he's not not sick, but he lets them touch him and they become well. He fulfills the law and he says, you can touch me all you want. I'm never going to get sick. But you touch me and you who are sick will be made well because I am the son of God. 
and they reached out and touched him, and they were made well. And they were made well. He goes beyond the physical and spiritual borders to bring healing because he, in fact, is the Son of God. And we, too, need to reach out to Jesus. First, we need to reach out to him for our salvation. I would pray that everybody in this room would know this, but I would say that I don't believe everybody in this room probably does. You need the healing touch of Jesus for your salvation because none of you will stand before God at your day of judgment and be declared clean and good on your own merit. If you've even had a sinful thought, which everybody in this room has, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, says His Word, you better have a Savior or you're in a lot of trouble. So we need to reach out for His garment. But for those of you who are saved... You still need healing because this process of restoration where God is making us more like Jesus, that's not a one-time thing. Salvation happens in a moment. Sanctification, that process of becoming more like Jesus, that takes a lifetime. And I'll tell you one thing. As we get ready for 2020, you ought to be able to look at January 2019 and say, you know what? This year wasn't perfect, but I'm more like Jesus at the end than I was at the beginning. And we need the power of Christ for that. We need the power of Christ for salvation, but also for restoration. And that leads us to our conclusion. If I could sum all this up, I'd say this. Jesus ultimately goes beyond all borders in his life, death, and resurrection to redeem us and restore us. Say it again. Jesus ultimately goes beyond all borders in his life, death, and resurrection to redeem us and restore us. How did he do that? the gospel. And what is the gospel? Here it is. Jesus lived a perfect life beyond all borders to earn our righteousness. All right, 33 years. Think about this. Never spoke a sinful word. Never committed a sinful act. All right, never had a sinful thought. It'd be hard for any of us to say that we could go even one church service during this, the last 35, 40 minutes as I've been preaching, I guarantee some of you have had some thoughts that probably did not honor God. You know why? Because we're sinners. And so he transcended that sinful nature and remained perfect from that virgin birth, that supernatural birth in the manger until his time at the cross. He was perfect in every way, transcending all human borders of sin to earn our righteousness. Then he died a sacrificial death beyond all borders to take on our sin. He died a death that nobody else could do but him. As he's hanging on that cross on Good Friday, he's taking the weight of your sin and mine. He's taking all the gossip and all the social media sin and all the stealing and the lying and the cheating and the arrogance and the pride. He's just taking it on wave after wave after wave, hour after hour, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing pain and suffering beyond the borders that any other human being could face because he's drinking down every drop of the cup of God's wrath. And he's doing it for you He's doing it for me. And that's Friday, but Sunday came. And on Sunday, he was raised beyond all borders to make a way from death to life. No one else could blaze a trail from eternal death to eternal life that whoever would place their faith in him would not perish, but live forever in his presence. That's the good news. He lived for you because you're a sinner. He died for you because you're a sinner. He rose from the dead because you're a sinner. 
And if you put your faith in him, in the words of the great theologian Larry Sykes, you'll be a sinner saved by grace. Do you know him? Does your life belong to him? And maybe if you are a Christian, have you gotten so deep into a storm right now you forgot to look to the Savior who even the wind and the waves obey? Today's the day to recognize your storm comes from God because your storm points to Jesus. Because he is a Savior that goes beyond all borders. Let's pray. Lord, I, I recognize the challenges of life seem to be magnified in the month of December. I know they do for me. Things are chaotic. Money is tight. People are hurting. Loved ones have been separated from us by death. We're reminded of it on lonely nights and early mornings. And then we hear messages of great joy and we, we realize there's something wrong with us because we don't share the same joy. Lord, I pray. I pray that whatever storm any of us may be in at this very time, that we see it as a gift from you, not because you don't love us, but because you do and because it'll help us to, to know Jesus in a greater way. I pray that you'd give us an urgency to run after him the way that the people when they came ashore did, going after him, do whatever it takes to get in his presence and seek his, his power and his blessing. I pray that we'd go beyond all borders with Jesus in our prayers and our walk with him and in seeking healing that can come only from his hand. And Father, if anybody in this room at the sound of my voice does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, would you do what you did for the disciples when they didn't understand the five loaves and the two fish feeding 5,000? Would you remove the blinders, remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that they would not leave this building this morning until praying and say, Jesus, I want you to come into my boat and be my Lord and Savior. I pray salvation would come to this house today and sanctification for those that know you. And all these things I pray, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.